Well, I'll encourage you this morning to open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. There's an outline in the bulletin where you can track along. Ephesians chapter 1. This is week 5 in an 11-week series dealing with the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, just a quick review of what we've talked about so far because much of what we've talked about so far applies to what we're talking about this morning. Week 1 we ask the question, who is the Holy Spirit? And the, the most basic biblical answer is He's the one who proceeds from the Father. He is the third person of the Trinity. He's not a force. He's not a it. He's a person, third person of the Trinity, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and with the Son. So that's who He is. Week two, we said, what has He done in the past? We look backward, and the biblical answer is, among other things He has done throughout redemptive history, in the past, throughout the Old Testament, He inspired the Scriptures. And we talked about different verses that uh, help us understand what inspiration means. Uh, the Holy Spirit breathed out the Word of God. The Holy Spirit carried men along as they wrote the words that we have in our Bibles. So, the Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures. Uh, week 3 and week 4 went together, and we talked about the work of the Holy Spirit in the past, in the present, and into the future until Jesus returns, and the Holy Spirit convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, and the Holy Spirit regenerating sinners. And those two weeks go together because those two weeks described work that the Holy Spirit does in the lives of lost people. He convicts lost people of sin and shows them their need for the Lord Jesus Christ, and He gives them life. He causes them to be born again or born from above, even when they're dead in their trespasses and sins. Now, this week, week five, all the way through the end of this series, we're focusing more on what the Holy Spirit does in the life or in the lives of believers of Christians. And so we've answered the question, who is he? What has he done in the past? What has he done in the world and amongst sinners and the work of salvation? But now we're thinking about Christians. We're thinking about believers and how the Holy Spirit is at work in us and through us. And so I'm going to start with a quote. This is on your notes and it'll be on the screen. It's from uh, two men. They wrote a book called The Holy Spirit, Greg Allison and Andreas Kostenberger. And they said this, the mighty divine work of rescuing sinful people is extensive, a multifaceted operation that runs the gamut from conviction of sin to incorporation into the body of Christ to resurrection. And when the Holy Spirit is poured out, sinful human beings experience a rich and a profound salvation. What the authors of that book and the authors of that quote are saying is, salvation is not just a simple thing in the Bible. The Bible has lots to say about our salvation, how we should think about it, how we understand it, how the triune God was at work to secure our salvation. It is a multifaceted operation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together. And they're making the point in this chapter that when we receive the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit does lots of different things in our lives and through our lives as we experience salvation that only comes from God. So one way for you to think about this, just as we're leading into Ephesians chapter 1, we could say the Holy Spirit plays both a decisive role and an ongoing role in our salvation. 
a decisive role and an ongoing role. In other words, there are some things that he does that are decisive, once-for-all actions. He's either done those things in your life or he hasn't. An example of that would be regeneration. Regeneration, causing a person to be born again. That's a decisive work of the Holy Spirit. It has either been done or it's not been done. You are either regenerate or unregenerate. You're not in the middle. And once you've been born again, you didn't cause yourself to be born again. You can't cause yourself to be unborn. This is a decisive work. An ongoing work would be conviction of sin. There's certainly a first time that the Holy Spirit works in your life, in your heart, in your mind to convict you of your sin. But he doesn't just do that once. He continues to do that in our lives as we gather together for worship and as we read the scriptures and as we participate in Bible study. The Spirit of God continues to use the Word of God to convict us of sin. And that's an ongoing work. I'll just give you one more example. We can make a distinction between two different things the Bible says about sanctification. And we'll talk more about sanctification in the weeks ahead. But in sanctification, we usually talk about the Holy Spirit making us more like Jesus. That's true. But there's a passage, in fact, there's multiple passages like 1 Corinthians 6.11 that really describe positional sanctification. And it's the idea that the Holy Spirit has set believers apart. So when Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, he doesn't say, you will be sanctified. He doesn't say you are being sanctified. He says you were sanctified. You were set apart, and that's a work of the Holy Spirit, a decisive work where the Holy Spirit positionally sets you apart to belong to the Lord. The Bible also speaks about progressive sanctification, and so Paul will tell the church in Thessalonica, God's will for you is your sanctification that you continue to grow in holiness and Christ-likeness, that you put sin to death and you become more and more like Christ. Both of these things are works of the Holy Spirit. Some are decisive, some are ongoing. So the point in all this is to say the Holy Spirit is directly involved in our salvation and the work that he does is a multifaceted work. Part of that work is described in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, as you take your copy of the Scriptures, the real verses that we want to read are Ephesians 1, 13, and 14. But those two verses in the original language are the tail end of one long sentence that begins all the way up in verse 3. So we're going to read the whole sentence. And in your Bible, it's many sentences. It's maybe a couple of paragraphs. But we're going to start in Ephesians 1, 3, and we're going to read all the way down to Ephesians 1, 14. So you hear the word of the Lord this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will 
according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we're thankful that you loved us when we were not lovable. And Jesus, we're thankful that you died to redeem us when we were lost. Holy Spirit, we're thankful that you seal us and that you are a guarantee of our inheritance. God, we pray that you would help us to understand what we have read this morning, help us to believe it, help us to worship in response to what we see in the Scriptures, and help us to be changed even this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the question we want to start with is, what does this passage teach us about the role of the Holy Spirit in the salvation of a believer? I mentioned to you just a moment ago, the verse... Uh, verses we just read in the original language are one long sentence. And Paul just keeps adding on to this sentence, talking about the work of the triune God in salvation. There are a lot of things that we could say about the verses we just read. And even as we read them, you have maybe many questions in your head about, well, what does this mean and what does that mean and how does this work and how do these things fit together? But our focus this morning is on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to try to deal with the the sentence in its entirety, but we're also going to focus on the specific work of the Holy Spirit in the salvation of a believer. So three big ideas, three truths. The first one is this. The Holy Spirit works in perfect unity with the Father and with the Son. Perfect unity. That's what Paul described in the the long sentence that we just read from verse 3 down to verse 14. You can break it up into three sections. A section about the work of the Father. He plays a unique role. He has a unique work in our salvation. He loves us before we loved Him. And He plans our salvation. That's what Paul described in those verses. It's the unique work of the Father. Then he describes the unique work of the Son. He's the beloved He's the one that the salvation comes to us through. It is through Jesus that we receive salvation. And the reason it comes to us through Jesus is he's the one who redeemed us. That's the unique work of God the Son in salvation. We don't speak about the Father coming to die on a cross. We speak about the Father sending the Son to be the God-man and to give his life for sinners on the cross. That's his work. And at the end of his work, you'll remember in the Gospel of John, he said, it's finished. That work is complete. There's not anything lacking in that work. And then at the end, he describes the work of the Holy Spirit. 
the one who seals us and the one who's given to us as a, a guarantee of our inheritance. And maybe you noticed at three points in the paragraphs that we just read, verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14, Paul comes to the end of the work of the Father, the end of the work of the Son, the end of the work of the Spirit, and three times he says God has done this to the praise of His grace. Look what he says at the end of verse 6. He says, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the beloved. Look at verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His grace glory, to the praise of the Father's glory, to the praise of the Son's glory, and at the end of verse 14, all of this is to the praise of His glory as He's talked about the work of the Holy Spirit. There is perfect unity within the triune Godhead, both in His person and in His work for our salvation. You read these verses and you say, why did the Father love us when we were unlovable? Why did the Son die for us to redeem us? Why has the Holy Spirit been sent to seal us and function as a guarantee or a deposit? Well, the answer that Paul gives in this passage is not that there was anything good in us, but all of these things happened ultimately for the glory of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So, number one, unity within the Trinity. Number two, the Holy Spirit claims ownership over those who have heard the gospel and believed in Jesus. This is the idea behind the word sfragizo, and it's the word you see in verse 13. In him also, in Jesus, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed. And that's that word sfragizo. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Let me try to explain what this, this word means and the point that Paul's trying to make. I have a lot of books in my office. One of my absolute most prized books, it would be in my top 10 if I had to pick 10 to keep out of my whole office, is a book called Abstract of Systematic Theology by a man named James Pettigrew Boyce. James Boyce was the founder of the seminary that I attended. It was founded in Greenville, South Carolina. It was closed and relocated to Louisville, Kentucky during the Civil War. And he wrote this systematic theology many, many years ago. He wrote it in 1887. My copy is not an 1887 copy, but it's really old. Uh, there's some dating in the beginning, some extra notes. I think it's early 1900s. Uh, somebody gave me this book. And when I use this book regularly, I open to the front cover, and there on the front page is an embossed stamp. Some of you have seen these. People have libraries, and you have an embosser that imprints your name. And it says, The Library of Stu and Jan Cundiff. Dr. Stuart Cundiff was our director of missions in Franklin County when I was a pastor at North Benson Baptist Church in Frankfort. Kentucky. And he gave me this book when he retired as a gift. And I treasure the book. And when I use it, I'm reminded that it has been sealed. It's a mark of ownership. And he's given it to me, but I'm reminded that it first belonged to someone else. That's why you stamp a book like this. You are marking it as yours. You're sealing it. I think about my grandma. She uh, didn't get to finish college when she was younger. As an adult, she went back 
and finished her bachelor's degree and became an RN. She was a NICU nurse in Amarillo for many years and uh, wonderful at her job. I remember going to her house and looking in her closet and seeing her stacks of nursing books. And on the spine, not the, the bound edge, but the other edge, the loose edge of the papers, like what you can see here, on the edge of every book in a giant black Sharpie marker. She had her last name written down the spine. L-U-M-M-U-S. Mary Lummis. Lummis. Right down the spine. Okay? It's not an embossed page in the front, but it's a seal. It's a sign of ownership saying, this is my book. And it was a warning to her other fellow nursing students. This is not your book. This is my book. That's the idea behind the word that Paul's using. He's talking about a, a wax seal that would be warmed and placed on a document and something would be pressed into it. Why would this happen? Well, sometimes it was done to secure a letter or contents or something of, of that nature. But sometimes it was done to show ownership. And that's what Paul's talking about when he says that the Holy Spirit has been given to seal believers. He has been sent to claim ownership over the Christian. Now, I want, I want you to think with me. This may seem really obvious to you, but this is really important. I want you to look at verse 13, and I want you to ask yourself the question, who is it that Paul says is actually sealed by the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit just going around sealing people randomly, and we don't know who he's going to seal and who he's going to claim as God's own. Well, Paul explains it in verse 13. He says, first of all, it's people who heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. No person will be sealed unless they've heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. They have to hear the good news about Jesus. But they don't just have to hear it. Paul says they also have to believe it. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Do you feel the weight of that verse when you think about our responsibility as believers to share the gospel with people? And Do you feel the weight of that verse when you think about the billions of lost people all around the world, even in our own city, have never heard the good news of Jesus. And in many places, unlike Odessa, Texas, there is no one there to tell them the good news. They have no opportunity to hear the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. No opportunity. That means they can't believe in it until somebody shares it with them. That's true for people around the world and that's true for people across the street from you. We have a a burden, we ought to have a burden for the lost when we say we want these people to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. We want them to be claimed as God's own. We want them to have all of the things that we're about to talk about in the rest of this sermon. But apart from hearing the gospel and being converted, repenting of their sin and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will not be sealed. We are not universalists. Meaning we do not believe every person will end up in heaven simply because they were born. We talked about regeneration just a few weeks ago. A person has to be born again. 
They have to believe the truth of the gospel in order to be sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. We, we must be people who share. We must be people who give. So there's a missional thought here in terms of application. I want to make one more point. For some of you, this may be relatively unimportant or unimpressive, but for some of you, you need to see this desperately. Who is it that is sealed by the Holy Spirit? It's those who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and those who have believed. Some of you have grown up or you've been influenced by church teaching in other denominations that says you have to do a certain religious ritual in order to be saved and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's not biblically right because Paul says the people who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit are the people who have heard the word of truth and they believed. Some of you have grown up in churches where you've been told something along the lines of, you, you can trust in Jesus, but then the Holy Spirit's going to come later and these things have to happen in your life, these ecstatic religious experiences, maybe speaking in tongues, maybe words of prophecy, maybe having some sort of miracle, some sort of second filling of the Spirit. And these people wait in terror and great anxiety for the Holy Spirit to come in some sort of miraculous type manifestation. But what Paul says is you don't have to wait for that. If you've heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and you have believed the good news of the gospel, Jesus Christ crucified for sinners, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Not through a ritual, not because you had some kind of emotional, ecstatic, religious experience, but because you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because you believed. So the Holy Spirit claims ownership over those who have heard the gospel and believed in Jesus. Truth number three, one more truth. The Holy Spirit is a down payment of our salvation. He's a down payment. I'm reading out of the ESV. That's not the word the translators use. They say in verse 14, speaking about the Holy Spirit, that he is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That word guarantee is erebone. It is translated variously in different English translations as pledge or deposit or first installment or earnest money, if you'd like a real estate metaphor, or a down payment. He's a pledge. He's a guarantee. There's a great New Testament scholar named F.F. Bruce, he explains this word in a very helpful way. He says, the word rendered guarantee is of Semitic origin. It's, it's of Hebrew origin. It's probably borrowed by the Greeks in the early days of trade with the Phoenicians. It was a commercial word denoting a pledge. Some object handed over by a buyer to a seller until the purchase price was paid in full. So you understand the logic of what Paul's saying here? If you've heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been sealed. You have been claimed as God's. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit of God who has sealed you. And this same Spirit has been given to you as a down payment of an inheritance that you will receive one day in the end. What is that inheritance? We read about it, didn't we? 
Revelation chapter 21. There's a day coming where God will make all things new. We sing about it earlier in the song about the Holy Spirit. He's the author of the new creation. He was involved in the creation of this world. He will be involved in making all things new in the end. A new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. The very presence of God coming down to this new earth. God with His people. His people with God. You know, if you read the verses immediately preceding what we read in Revelation 21, if you read the back end of Revelation 20, you read about the final defeat of Satan and sin and sickness and disease. It all gets tossed into the lake that burns with fire. It's all done. And this new creation is ushered in. And God's people get to be with God. Just like God intended in the beginning. God with His people dwelling together in unity. If you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and you have believed put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's your inheritance. That's what's waiting for you in the end. And what Paul says is you don't have to wait till the end to get all of it. You get a first installment now when you believe. A down payment. A pledge. Someone who claims you as his own and someone who guarantees all that the Father has planned for you and all that Christ died to secure for you. You get the Holy Spirit. You get Him now. I just want you to see how upside down grace is to the way that we tend to think. God's grace is entirely backwards to the way we tend to think about heaven and salvation. The default way of thinking about salvation for human beings is, I have to pay my way. I've got to make some contribution now. People think, I've got to get my life in order. I've got to make a down payment and start paying off this debt with God. I've got to pull myself up and, and pay my way into this eternity. And it's the exact opposite of what Paul describes here. That the Father loved you and planned an inheritance for you when you were His enemy. And that Christ came and He paid your debt in full. He redeemed you. And that you don't need to make a down payment on heaven. God is actually going to make a down payment on heaven in your life. And He makes it through the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful passage when you understand what Paul's describing. So those are the truths I want you to see. I want to think about application. Just very basically, how should this change us? The way we think, the way we worship, the way we live. Three suggestions and we'll close. Number one, since we belong to God, we can have assurance of our salvation. It is possible for you to have assurance, confidence in your salvation. Because the Holy Spirit seals believers. Before we moved here, I was a pastor at First Baptist Church in Kingfisher, Oklahoma. Kingfisher is a town of about 5,000 people. Uh, First Baptist Church was uh, the main Baptist church. There was one small Baptist church 
in town, but we were the, the big Baptist church in town. Uh, we had a really nice youth building. All the kids in the, in the community came to our building for lots of events. We were right by the high school. When it came time to go to youth camp, most of the other churches in town didn't send a youth group to camp, and most of those kids came with us. So it was interesting when we went to youth camp, we would take massive groups of kids, huge groups, much bigger than our youth group, because we would pick up the Methodist kids, and we would pick up the cool non-denominational kids, and we would pick up the Christian church kids and the Nazarene kids, and believe it or not, we would pick up the Catholic kids too, and all of these kids would go with us to youth camp. Our groups were so big we had to take two weeks of camp. We had a high school group, we filled up a cabin of a hundred kids and we ran out of room and then we had a middle school group. We filled up a cabin with a hundred kids. It wasn't that our church was that big, it was just that was the community sending their kids to camp with us. It was fascinating to me to take a mixed group of kids like that from all different denominations to a youth camp and to talk to them about salvation. One of the thing that, things that I experienced each of the years I went to Falls Creek with middle schoolers and high schoolers was that many of the kids we took lived in absolute terror that they would go to hell one day. And they were churched kids. And they had people, grown-ups and pastors and Sunday school teachers, talking to them about heaven and talking to them about Jesus. But the way that they were taught... The truths that they were presented with, which really weren't truths at all, left them terrified. Some of them went to churches where they were taught, you have to do certain things. You have to be good enough, and here's the checklist of things. And they lived in constant terror because they were honest enough to look at their lives and say, I'm doing a lousy job at that stuff. Others of them were just taught, hey, look, you just need to make a decision about Jesus. Here's the prayer that you pray. And these were smart kids. They were thinking kids. And they thought, well, if I made that decision, what if I unmake it? Am I in and I'm out? And how does that work? And they were terrified. Can I tell you what many of them lacked? Many of them lacked maybe what some of you lack. An understanding that salvation is not just a switch that you flip in your life, but it is something that began in eternity past before the foundation of the world in the mind of God the Father who loved you before you were born. And something that was secured in the life, death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ who said, it's finished. Not the balls in your court. It's finished. And they lacked an understanding that the Holy Spirit of God is given to seal us, to claim us as His own. Can I tell you something? The more Trinitarian you become in your thinking, and the more you understand the biblical truth about the Trinity, who the triune God is and how He works, the more assurance you will have about your salvation. And the less you understand the truth about the triune God and how he works to save sinners, the more you will feel it's up to you in one way or another, and you will live in fear. Assurance. This is what John describes if you look at Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, John says that he heard the number of God's people. 
you heard it. Then he looked and he saw a great multitude. And it's the same group being described in Revelation chapter 7. He hears the number. He sees the multitude. And right in the middle of that, John says, these are the ones who are sealed. Same word. Sfragidzo. He's not talking about some magical mark on your forehead. He's talking about the Holy Spirit given to claim God's people as his own. God knows the number of his people. He knows the number of hairs on your head, and he knows the full number of his people. He seals them with the Holy Spirit. This is the, the logic behind Paul's confidence in Philippians 1.6 where he says, I am certain that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Why is he so certain? Not because he has confidence in us. Because he has confidence in the Father and the Son and the Spirit working together to save a people for his glory. So, number one, assurance. Number two, since we belong to God, we should live for God's glory. Let me go back to our youth group in Kingfisher. Some of those kids that we took every year were just terrified. I mean, they would literally sit and they would say to you, hey, I got saved last year, but I lost it this year. I need to get it back this year. And it was this back and forth yo-yo. They didn't understand, and we would try to teach them and try to work with them. Some of them were terrified. Some of them were completely calloused to the whole thing. Some of them had bought into the lie that because you prayed a formulaic prayer, you now have your ticket punched for heaven and you can go back and you can do whatever you want to do because you've prayed this prayer. That's hard to minister to those two groups in the same group. You understand? Those who are terrified, they don't understand grace, and those who don't understand grace and they're calloused and they think that their life doesn't have to change in any way, shape, or form. There's no understanding of divine intervention, of the Holy Spirit bringing conviction, of the Holy Spirit regenerating you and changing your heart. It's just the idea that you pray some sort of formulaic prayer. A biblical understanding of salvation helps us understand that the work of the Father and the work of the Son and the work of the Holy Spirit is all done in our lives for the praise of His glory. Not so that we can go back to business as usual. The Father didn't love you so that you could wallow in sin. And the Son didn't redeem you so that you could just plunge on into your sin like nothing had changed. And the Spirit's not given to seal you and to claim you as His own so that you can continue in sin unchanged. I think this is the logic of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You have the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. He lives in you. He's God come to be with you. He's this down payment of what's to come. You have him from God. You're not your own. Why? Because he sealed you. He claimed you as his own. Your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. Jesus bought you. You don't belong to yourself. Jesus bought you and the Holy Spirit has claimed you. What do we do with all of that according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 6? You should glorify God in your body. That's the logical conclusion for Paul. Not go back to business as usual. 
but glorify God in your body. How about Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. Same word. The Holy Spirit's given to seal you, to claim you as his own. Don't grieve him. Live for God's glory, even as you wait for the day of your redemption in the future. So, assurance of salvation, living for God's glory, number three. Since we belong to God, we should long for the presence of God. When you think about the Holy Spirit being given as a guarantee or a down payment, that ought to leave you looking to the future, wanting more and waiting for more and hoping for more. Christians are people who look to the future. You know, there are a certain group of preachers in the world today who want you to live for your best life now, today. Health, wealth, prosperity, happiness, ease, all the rest. Have it now. You should have it now. The Bible says you don't have nothing now. You have a down payment now. You have God come to live in you. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a guarantee of what's to come. But you don't have it all now. We don't have the full experience of what we read in Revelation chapter 21 now. We're, we're forward, future-oriented looking people. I think this is what Paul was talking about in Romans 8. Let me show you a few verses from Romans 8. He says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He's talked about the, the fallen created order. He says it's groaning, it's waiting for Christ to return. And he says, you know what? Believers are doing the same thing. We're groaning. We have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. The first fruits, a down payment. More will come later. We have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit's at work in us, we long for the presence of God. We long for the eradication of evil. We long for the destruction of death and Satan and sin and sickness. We yearn for that. We groan for that. Even when we don't know exactly what to pray, as we'll talk about in a few weeks, the Holy Spirit helps us in those moments. We long for God's presence. Can I tell you this? The most Spirit-filled people that you've met. I've told you over the last several weeks, the most Spirit-filled people that you will ever meet in your life are the most christ focused people because the work of the Holy Spirit to fix our eyes on Jesus to glorify Jesus can I add to that this morning the most spirit filled people that you will ever meet in your life long to be in the presence of God and they long for the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem they are groaning for it they're waiting for it they have just a down payment of it now, and they long for that day. Paul says something very similar. I'll leave you to study all of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 to 5. We'll just read a, a section here. Paul says, while we're still in this tent, we groan. Same word from Romans 8. While we're still in this tent, our bodies, this world, this fallen life, this busted up world, we are groaning. The one who's prepared glory for us, this very thing is God, and he has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, as a down payment. More to come, but we have the Holy Spirit now. 
So we're of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's what it means to long to be in the presence of God. If it really came down to it, stay in this world or be with the Lord. Paul says our desire ought to to be to be with the Lord. Whether we are at home or away, we are going to make it our aim to please Him. We're going to live for His glory even as we long for His presence. So we're going to end this morning. I'm going to ask you to take a minute to just pray. Uh, I ask you to close your Bible. We've heard from God's Word this morning. Van's going to come up. We're going to sing one more song in a moment. Uh, And I just want to ask you to spend a few moments praying about what we've talked about. We don't do this all the time, but sometimes we get in such a rush to move to the next thing. We don't do a very good job of being still and thinking about what we have heard from the Word of God and praying about it. So I just want you to take a moment and think about this work of the Holy Spirit in sealing you, claiming you as God's own. I want you to thank God for the assurance that you can have because the Holy Spirit has claimed you as His own. I want you to think about this idea that because we belong to God, we ought to live for His glory. I want you to pray and ask the the Holy Spirit to help you in this area. Pray that you would not grieve the Holy Spirit, but that you would seek to glorify God in your body. Confess your sin. I want you to take just a moment to think about the Holy Spirit as a down payment which means that there is more to come. There is an inheritance prepared for you. Maybe you would thank God for that inheritance and for that down payment. Maybe you would pray that God would be at work in your heart to create a a holy longing for His presence.